You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hi guys, Roger here, and I'm excited for today's podcast. Now I know that not everyone listening is a numbers person. Usually that's the least favorite detail of running restaurants, but it's vitally important to your profits and success. I hope you stay tuned because today I'm speaking with a CPA and tax professional with many years working closely with restaurant and hospitality clients to plan, prepare, and put the books in order for the best possible tax position. We're going to be talking about tax deductions you can take legally whether you own or lease your property, the nuances of asset depreciation and loopholes to speed up the process and take more benefits today than in the future, the best form of organization for your company, taking money out of your company, and so much more. Obviously, this can be complicated stuff. So a strong relationship with an expert in your corner that you can call anytime during the year is in your and your restaurant's best interests. I have a great guest today who's an expert on these matters, so listen closely. I'm sure you'll gain nuggets of wisdom and best practices. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome back, everyone. It's Roger from Restaurant Rockstars. Engaging topics to help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver Amazing guest experiences. So, you know, it's all, I talk often about maximizing profits in different ways in your restaurant through inventory controls and knowing what your prime costs are and all the little things that you can do throughout the year to make as much money as possible. Because after all, this is one of the most challenging of all businesses and you might as well be making as much money as you can. Am I right? But there's also an important component of preparation at tax time never a pleasant time of year on either side but it's a necessary one so today i'm really excited to introduce my guest mr tony pericelli and he is a cpa and tax professional from a firm in carolina called scott and company tony's been working in the restaurant and hospitality industry for many years serving many clients in uh, restaurants and hospitality. He also serves as a member of the board of directors of the South Carolina Restaurant and Lodging Association. So welcome, Tony. I'm so excited to have you today. Thanks. Glad to be here, Roger. Well, super. So again, um, we want to dive a little bit into what's important, but why don't we begin, um, you know, what you just told me a little bit ago was really, really great about how you got into serving clients and now you have a real interest in, in helping clients in, in restaurant and hospitality. You've got some success stories on how you were able to you know save them some good money. You, you find things that they miss because let's face it, restaurant owners aren't necessarily on top of their numbers. They're on top of running their restaurants, which is critically important. And that's why they rely on experts. So tell us a little bit about how you started serving restaurant clients. Okay. Yeah. A few years ago, I was uh, referred a, a client uh, from a good friend and, and who is also a client. Um, and he basically was working with this company to uh, out of Charleston, South Carolina, to uh, to build a, a restaurant, um, a group of restaurants that they had uh, developed a concept, uh, kind of a, a gourmet, uh, fast casual type concept. And uh, so basically, I started working with them and started looking at their prior year tax returns, which had been prepared by other CPAs. 
and realized that um, with just a few minutes of research on my part, I was able to find a couple of items on those tax returns, uh, nuances of, of restaurant-type uh, tax and accounting um, strategies that had been missed by the prior CPAs. And so uh, through that experience of helping these guys out and basically uh, going back and correcting a couple of mistakes and um, omissions on their prior year returns, I realized that I had a real interest in uh, serving the restaurant community. And so I, I drew upon some prior uh, real estate experience as well as just a general uh, curiosity about the restaurant industry and was able to um, help those guys as well as begin to learn a lot more about the restaurant industry and the tax uh, planning techniques that are uh, specific to that industry. And, you know, there's certain things like the, the FICA tip credit that every, everybody, every restaurant that has tipped employees should be taking no matter what and, and other things related to um, employment tax credits um, because as a restaurant owner you you certainly go through a, a lot of employees hiring and and uh, there's turnover and you want to make sure that you're getting you know maximum amount of credits um, uh, that are available in your state and, and from the um, the IRS as well so basically through that experience I, I realized hey this is a really interesting area there's a lot of these companies around. Um, in, in South Carolina, we have a lot of uh, a lot of tourism and a lot of, uh, especially in the coast. And so, um, I, I decided that I would like to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this uh, this industry. And from that, I was able to um, get involved in the South Carolina Restaurant Lodging Association. Uh, joined the uh, joined as an affiliate as a service provider. Started attending meetings and was able to speak at a couple of the meetings and offer up some uh, educational opportunities for the members. And just get to know a lot of the folks who are involved in the community here in, in South Carolina. And so it's been a really neat neat experience. Um, got to know a lot of folks. And I think it's just something that I've, I've really started to enjoy and uh, look forward to getting more involved in the community. That's a really, really great story. Now, you mentioned mm -hmm. several things that I want to dive a little deeper into. But I okay. um, have... Many people in my audience that are starting new restaurants and they haven't been seasoned operators. So could you explain right. a little bit more? Obviously, this is a gratuity industry. You know, restaurants and hotel operations have a lot of tipped employees. They may or may not be familiar what the FICA tip credit is all about. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure. The, the basic concept of the FICA tip credit is that uh, when, when restaurant employees are tipped, um, Often, of course, you've got cash tips, but you also have credit card tips. Um, those tips have to be reported for tax purposes. And so the employees um, typically are responsible for that, but also the the company, the restaurant owner, the company is responsible for reporting that as well. And so if you think about how um, a tip is is administered, the, the customer uh, either gives cash or you know, writes it on the credit card slip, and those funds are basically uh, directed or transferred directly to the employee. And so there's no opportunity for the, uh, the company, the restaurant owner, to withhold the taxes um, from, from those funds. Mm -hmm. But the company is still responsible for paying the, uh, the Medicare, the, the payroll tax, Medicare and Social Security tax right. to the IRS. So right there you see that um, the restaurant company in a way, is almost is responsible for paying taxes that in, with any other type of employee would have been withheld from their pay. So what the IRS has done is allowed for this credit that says if you have these types of employees and this situation is occurring, you can take a credit to offset that additional tax that you had to pay on behalf of your employee. 
And it's, it's a very fundamental, uh, fundamental thing that is done on any, any restaurant company um, tax return. Um, you see it most, of course, most often with uh, full service restaurants, but you can have it sometimes with um, uh, QSRs or, or other types of restaurants, fast food type restaurants, typically um, some of the ones like, for instance, Sonic, you know, they have uh, car hops that are tipped um, and other types of companies like that. But usually it's uh, for companies that have wait staff um, that are have tipped uh, tipped employees. Now that brings up another question. Now it's been mm-hmm. a couple of years since I've ran restaurants, and this industry is obviously notorious for staff underreporting their tips and not necessarily accurately reporting those. Now the company mm-hmm. is on the hook for the full amount of the tips that are earned. Have you seen any issues with that? And is there there used to be a rule I think years ago that the company had to report on the payroll a minimum, I think, of 15% of all sales um, that came in through a tipped employee's paycheck. Uh, is that still the case? Has that changed any? What can you offer there? Uh, I'm not positive that that's still a hard and fast rule, but I know there are general guidelines. I've seen, I've read a little bit of, of uh, information saying that if, if there were to be an examination, like an audit done yes. by an agent, they, they do have certain standards that they look at. And they, they assume... Um, especially in these days with credit cards being so prevalent that they they really take a look at that and say, okay, if you have a certain number of, or a certain amount of sales, we're going to assume that uh, there's uh, some minimum percentage of of tipping you know going on uh, related to those sales. And of course, you know the, the, the typical tips are in the range of anywhere from ten to twenty percent for most folks. So that's kind of the range they're going to going to look at. Um, but I, I don't know that, that necessarily is a is an actual regulation that you know, is required. Um, but it's more of a, a guideline, I believe, that uh, right. the IRS uses if they're going to to audit you and try to determine if you what you've reported is correct. Yeah, modern POS systems obviously show an employee's sales, and then it also records the amount of tips that an employee will report at mm-hmm. the end of the payroll period. And I used to do payroll myself, so I was you know really in depth with those numbers. But you know, most of the time, it's like you you type in the numbers into the calculator and it would come up far short of 15%. And I think I always used to just edit the tips to make sure it was at least 15, but I knew my people were earning more than, you know, 20% on average. We had a really high volume place. So this is really critically important for an operator just to stay on the right side of the IRS and not, uh, you know, trigger an audit. So let's, uh, let's talk about um, asset depreciation and you also specialize in real estate. So obviously there are many operators out there that own their own properties. They have several locations, um, that sort of thing. Why don't we talk about what's important there? Okay. And actually this is uh, an issue that's come up with both uh, two types of companies, companies that first of all own their own real estate. Um, and then secondly, companies that lease, which that pretty much covers everybody, I guess. Yes. Um, but uh, so you can have situations in, in both. So the first type of company, if you own your own real estate, um, it's very important to understand how that real estate is uh, depreciated for tax purposes. And so when we talk about depreciation, um, what we're saying there is you have a large asset or something, a capital asset, again, like real estate or equipment or something like that, the tax rules say that in most cases, you cannot just expense the full cost of that asset right away. So even if you write a check 
of course, a lot of people don't write write checks for real estate. They they finance it. But if, let's say you did. Let's say you wrote wrote a check for a million dollars for a building to you know to put your restaurant in. You can't expense that million dollars right away. You have to depreciate that over several years. And for commercial property, that's 39 years in most cases. Um, that's a very long time to take uh, depreciation or to take those expenses. And in a lot of cases, the cash that you have to outlay, even with a, say, a 20% down type situation where you're getting a loan and you're getting a 20% down to 80% um, loan, um, that still, that's a lot of cash that you're probably not going to be able to deduct in the first year when you actually write the check. So um, it's very important to understand that there are some ways that you can actually uh, mitigate that to where you can depreciate uh, real estate a little bit quicker than the 39 years. Now, with owning a property, one of those things that we can do is uh, it's called a cost segregation study. Mm-hmm. And I've been involved in several of these over the years. And basically what cost segregation study does is it takes a look at the property and breaks that property down into its various components. And so, for instance, you might have uh, the electrical system, the HVAC system, the, the structure of the building itself, the yeah. roof, the flooring, the, uh, the landscaping outside. Okay, and so that, that's a very important thing to, to understand just in terms of how a building is put together. And I'm not an engineer or construction guy, but I've, I've gotten to, to learn a lot about, of course, the components of a building and how they relate to um, the tax code. And the tax code is very talks a lot about this. So the reason that's important and the way you can take use that to your advantage is because certain components of a building actually qualify to be depreciated much more quickly than that standard 39 years. So, for instance, in the in the, in the restaurant industry, there's actually a class of property that's five years instead of 39. And then there's another class that's 15 years, depending on the type of, of property and the use. And so I've been involved in several studies. And what these studies do is cost segregation studies is they bring together folks who have engineering backgrounds as well as accounting and tax backgrounds and combine those to break that property down into its various components and be able to accelerate that depreciation tremendously so that maybe you're actually getting, in some cases, your depreciation that you're taking is more than the cash that you're actually spending on the property. That can happen. Now, um, one situation um, that I've actually been involved in, this even, some cases can even even be better, is where the several years, and I actually went through this with one of my uh, large uh, franchise clients, they owned about 100 uh, locations um, of a fast food franchise. And basically, their, their real estate had been on the books for, uh, for about 10 to 15 years or even longer for some of their locations. Some of them were you know, you know, newer. But um, we took a look at their depreciation they'd been taking, and they had not broken their buildings down into the various components. And so we went through a, um, a cost segregation study with them and found out that um, – between the time that they put this, these properties in service and the current year, which was, was about two years ago, um, they had missed about $6 million of depreciation oh over the years. Yeah. All right. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't going to get that at all. It doesn't mean it was missed completely. It just sure. meant that they, had, they were taking that yeah. more slowly than they could have. Yeah, yeah. It would have been a and benefit so, earlier. Right. So what we were able to do is through the cost segregation study is identify that. But then we made a special election 
to where they could take that entire $6 million deduction all in one year. And so that was a very powerful, uh, you know, for, uh, formula for them or powerful um, ability for them to catch up that depreciation that they had not taken. Now, again, I want to I want to reinforce this is not something this is not a out of thin air depre- uh, deduction. It's not something they weren't going to get and we got it for them. They just were able to accelerate this quicker. It's a timing. It's a timing difference. But when it, when you look at time value of money and just general financial planning, I'd much rather have a $6 million deduction now yes, than a little bit over time over uh-huh. the next several years. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so, so that sounds like something, you know, the average accountant would have missed, but this is something with you, you zero it in on, on a clear mm-hmm. benefit for this client and it right. ended up putting them in a great position. I'm sure they're very pleased with that. Yeah, they're, they're really happy about that and we're able to get them caught up. And now, anytime they have a new location um, put in, we we don't necessarily do a full cost segregation study because those are expensive, but we refer back to the ones that we've done and use those as a frame of reference to properly um, uh, put all their uh, new new product or excuse me new new locations on the books so that they're being properly depreciated and they're getting the uh, the deductions in the current time or the current amount of time that they should they should get them. Now the other side of this I mentioned is, is a company that's leasing, um, their, their space. And I had that situation just come up uh, this past year as well, um, with a, a real, a restaurant company that had did a, did about a million dollar upfit to a location, a new location they were opening. And basically we were able to do the same type of a study for that location, um, and essentially break that down into its various components as well. So it doesn't have to be strictly a company that owns its own property. It can be a, um, someone who's leasing space. And if you're putting significant amount of money into uh, the upfit, the initial upfit for that space, um, you want to make sure that's also properly classified so that you get your maximum deductions. And so that, that it, it, can be, it can be both ways, be an advantage to both sides. I want to get into classification in just a minute, but you, you keep triggering all these thoughts that remind me of past experience. Now, let's as long as we're talking about depreciating capital mm-hmm. assets in addition to real estate that may be owned by a company or, you know, fit ups that you put into a lease space. How about let's talk about equipment and the nuances between you know, those people that buy brand new equipment that has a longer depreciable life versus used equipment that's in good shape, but it's already been depreciated on someone else's books. Like, where does that, how does that work out? Well, the, the prior use of, of equipment doesn't really have any impact if, if, if you're purchasing it for your business and it's new to you. Okay. Um, yep. So you, you, you kind of restart the depreciation, um, now, albeit at a, at a lower price point, of course. That's one of the reasons for buying used equipment, of course. You tend Is to get a better price. based on the acquisition price. cost, Tony? Right, the acquisition cost. Um, there, there is one um, element called bonus depreciation, which I don't think we, we haven't talked about yet. But uh-huh. um, and actually, that's something that's being phased out, so it's not going to be as big of an impact um, under the current tax rules. But it is there. But that's only allowed on new purchases, so I new see. equipment. So it's not allowed on used. But other than bonus depreciation, which is a big deal, I don't want to gloss over it. But um, other than that, the normal depreciation basically just depends on what you you spend on the on the fixed asset on the new equipment or the used equipment and you start the depreciation over, um, in when it's, you know, when it's in your, in service in your company. So that being said though, um, there's a couple of items that I think are pretty important to, to understand about equipment. 
So the first thing is the IRS has what's called safe harbor rules. And basically what these safe harbor rules say is that if, if the equipment you're purchasing is under a certain dollar threshold, you don't even have to put it on your books as a fixed asset to depreciate. You can actually just expense the entire thing right away. So let's say you buy uh, a, a new um, something, uh, some kitchen equipment that you uh, need for your restaurant. And if the the dollar amount that you're spending is under $2,500, you can just immediately expense it. You don't even have to put that on your books for depreciation. And so that can be a really big advantage because not only are you uh, immediately expensing that, but also something a lot of folks might not think about is many states, including South Carolina, we have um, what's called business personal property tax that we pay. And I don't know, if, I know a lot of states have that, not everyone, but and, and typically you, you file with the state or maybe sometimes the county that you're in, but you're paying a tax on the value of your fixed assets. Right, right. And, and other, other than real estate, which is equipment and uh, furniture, things like that. So, uh, of course, you're going to have some of that on the books, but to the extent that you can maybe keep a few items here and there off of your fixed assets rolls, um, that can actually save you in the property tax realm as well, not just income tax. So that's a good uh, good feature, but but the IRS rules have changed a little bit in the last couple of years with those safe harbors, and so it used to be that there was no official rules related to that. Then a couple of years ago, they instituted a five hundred dollar safe harbor. Now um, they've revised that rule, and now the new rule is t- uh, two thousand five hundred dollars for an individual uh, any individual taxpayers. And so there's also though an expanded amount that you can get. And that amount is $5,000, but to qualify for that $5,000 safe harbor, you have to have audited financial statements. And so yeah. sometimes that's cost prohibitive for a yeah. small company that, you know, audited financial statements, it depends on where you are and, and what kind of uh, service you're using, but those can be thousands of dollars to, to get. Um, my, my company does that. Um, a lot of, most CPA firms, um, you know, will, will provide that service. But, um, you know, you might spend ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars or more, depending on your size of your company, to get audited financial statements. So in a lot of cases, it's not worth that just just to get that additional safe harbor amount. But if it's something you're doing anyways, um, then it's great to know about because you can raise that safe harbor limitation. And we found that in a lot of cases, um, companies that have financing on their equipment or on their real estate or any type of uh, financing in place, maybe even operational loans, the banks are often requiring these audits. So something you're going to be doing anyways, so why not take advantage of the additional safe harbor amount, uh, the increased safe harbor amount up to $5,000. Now that really fascinates me, the whole topic that we just covered. Hmm. Now that just rings a bell that you really need to develop a really solid relationship with your tax expert, your CPA, and not just wait until tax time to do your taxes. I mean, this is ongoing planning throughout the year. It could be February. You're just buying some new equipment. I mean, you really need to reach out to a professional such as yourself and ask advice. Does it make sense to put this on the balance sheet or put it on the P&L as an expense and all those types of things? And, uh, you know, in my rudimentary knowledge of accounting, the, the rule of thumb 
thumb used to be, you know, anything over, I think, $600 would be capitalized and anything under that would go on the P&L. And now there's this whole safe harbor rule. And that can be really confusing to an operator that isn't on mm -hmm. top of all these nuances. And that's where right. you come in. You can be of huge benefit just by, you know, offering your advice throughout the year before you even get to tax time. I thought that was a really important point to make. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to know that these rules are in place because like you said, if you, you're purchasing, say, uh, you know, a, a new mixer for your, for your kitchen, um, you're spending a thousand dollars. Well, naturally we say, well, that's, that's a hard asset. You know, yeah. that's something that's going to last a long time, right. hopefully, or, or, a, you know, a stove or a, a, right. a hood or whatever it is you're buying. But you can't think like that. You have to look at the numbers and you have to make sure, does this qualify for safe Harbor? If it does, it doesn't matter what your your instinct is. It doesn't matter what your kind of your general thought process is. It qualifies. Now that being said, I want to make sure you know everybody's aware that you do have. There are different rules for what we call GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, mm -hmm. which is more more your your general financial statements. There could, in some cases, there could be requirements, say by a bank or other regulatory agency. That you have financial statements that that qual that adhere to GAAP or generally accepted accounting practices. So in those cases, you have to maybe potentially use a different safe harbor amount, um, depending on what what the the situation is. Um, so what I've been talking about is strictly for tax planning purposes. So you have to at least be aware of that that there could be differences in the way you handle your books for financial purposes or loans or things like that versus the way you handle for taxes. But, uh, but it is a different mindset that you have to have. Now, I think awareness is a critical word to use here because mm -hmm. often there are other people involved in the accounting process. So right. in my case, as an owner, I was, you know, integrally involved in the process for, you know, at least 15 years. I think I did my own books and then I worked with a CPA professional such as yourself to put myself. So I had a really good understanding while I was doing it. But most mm -hmm. operators, you know, they have a bookkeeping firm and they just pass their stuff onto it and, and they just let it go. And they don't know after that if, you know, if that person is doing right by them before it is tax time or not. Right. Sometimes there's an office manager involved that just has mm -hmm. a very basic bookkeeping experience and they're just doing the data entry on a day-to-day -day basis. So when a new right. piece of equipment comes in, you know, in most cases, maybe they are capitalizing it. They're not aware of these safe harbor rules. Do you find, because obviously this can cost you more money when it's time to do taxes, the condition of your bookkeeping records, when you turn that over to your tax professional, if he's got to do a lot of digging and cleaning up and asking a lot of questions, it's costing more money because, you know, the meter's running versus if you have right. a real clean set of books and, and you have regular communication throughout the year, it just makes the process simpler, smoother, and you're really not likely to miss much. Yeah, it definitely helps to have clean books, and and it's not just the the fees that you're going to pay to a tax professional. Obviously, that's one one element, but something else that um, that could happen is if it, it, one example is going back to the fixed assets. Mm -hmm. When you're purchasing, um, let's say uh, some of my clients have used um, equipment brokers to where they're buying a, a bunch of equipment on one one invoice. Okay, and so, or it's all a group of equipment that they're purchasing, and it's, it's being sent on one invoice. Well, if if you see that entry being put on, let's say it's fifty thousand dollars of equipment, the bookkeepers put that down as a fifty thousand dollar fixed asset, 
well, you look at that as, as a tax uh, on the tax side, I'm looking at the books. I see that. I think, okay, it's above the safe harbor. So we need to depreciate it, put it as a normal fixed asset. But what could possibly be the case is that $50,000 total is made up of many different items uh, of which some of those should could be potentially under the $2,500 threshold. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at the, the individual line items, not just the total on the invoice. So that's one example where yes. bookkeeping can make that's a true. big difference. Yes. Not, not just the amount of time that I'm spending to do the tax return, but actually missing something like we just talked about, the safe harbor. So you know, not, not listing out each individual item from the invoice could cost you a lot in terms of uh, being able to depreciate that immediately. Well, you know, that also happens with invoices from suppliers, not just equipment mm-hmm. you buy. So you're making a very right. good point here. And I want to point this out to operators, and it's, it's fairly common. If you work with suppliers in, and you're buying a variety of products, not just food, but you're buying paper goods and you're buying you know, mops and supplies and all this kind of stuff, in a lot of cases, those invoices are just sort of lumped together where you've got food items in with operating supplies and all those things really need to be broken out or else it's going to give you a very inaccurate picture of your food costs. So if you've got a bookkeeper that just says, oh, here's your invoice from you know one of the top three food suppliers and it's $5,000 this week and they classify it all to food, I mean, there goes your food costs and it's not an accurate picture. So you know right. the detail of bookkeeping and, and understanding all the different um, items in your chart of accounts and properly classifying everything is really, really important. Yeah, that is very important um, from a planning standpoint, like you, like you mentioned, and being able to, and also from an analytic standpoint, just uh, looking at your your food costs, your cost of goods sold, and your prime costs, and making sure those are in line. And and if something is getting out of line, then maybe you have to to dig a little deeper to see what, what's going on. And sometimes you might find that, like like you mentioned, there's uh, additional items on the on the invoices you weren't expecting. Um, another another area that uh, I think is very important, or reason that's very important, is because uh, in, in cases of fraud, I mean, uh, it does happen. Um, anytime you're dealing with a lot of um, money moving back and forth, a lot of different suppliers, um, you know, you've got a various uh, different uh, groups of folks that you're you're purchasing your food and your uh, maybe your paper goods and uh, various different things as, uh, from from different uh, suppliers. You've got to be careful. Uh, because your employees might uh, say, "Hey, I want to order something for myself, or order something for personal purposes," and uh, nobody will ever notice it because it's just a few dollars on an invoice. And but that can add up over time. I had a situation several years ago with a, a manufacturing client um, where one of the the general manager was uh, purchasing uh, some some items from a, a normal supplier. It was, it was a regular supplier of the company that they regularly did business with. So it didn't trigger anything there as being an unusual uh, source, but he was purchasing things that he was using on a, a car that he was fixing up personally, um, his personal vehicle. And, but since those items were coming from a regular supplier, uh, the, the owner of the company didn't pick up on it. Right. And so yeah. later on we went back and found out, well, yes, this is your regular supplier, but these three or four items, these have nothing to do with your business. These are be, being stolen basically by your employee. And so, um, that's something to think about in terms of just being aware of what's going on and your, you know, analytics can help with that in terms of percentages and making sure that your, your, your food cost and your uh, cost of goods sold amounts are staying within the tolerable uh, ranges and um, tolerances. And so just be aware that that's something that's uh, 
could happen, you know, and, and, and does happen in some cases. Absolutely true. Yeah, unfortunately, this business has sort of a <clears throat> reputation for, you know, abuses by staff. I've got plenty of stories over the years until you put systems in place. But working with a professional is just one more check and balance, one more system where you can finally identify some of these areas that uh, you might be losing before. So that's another right. good point. Let me talk about um, earlier we were talking about fixed assets and leasing. Now, you, there are certain deductible expenses if you do a renovation of a property. Can we talk about how much or what you can expense or not, or deduct there um, from your taxes based on a, a remodel of a facility when you're first going in? You know, common area maintenance is another charge that's typically mm -hmm. charged by, you know, landlords and all that sort of thing. And, and fit-ups when you spend the money. Is, does it become your asset even though you're leasing a property if you're spending money on someone else's building and it's and it's a permanent attachment or does that go with the property when you leave? I mean, all these things impact your taxes. Yes, that's correct. Um, well, to answer your last question, generally in most cases when you're doing an upfit of a property that is leased, um, that uh, that typically uh, reverts back to the to the owner of the property once the lease term is up. Um, but that being said, you get to depreciate it um, as long as you're paying for it. Um, mm -hmm. okay. You get to depreciate it as the tenant um, uh, during the time of your your lease. Um, now, as far as uh, general rules in terms of the uh, upfits and remodels, you've got to look at the situation in, in two different ways. First of all, you've got the initial upfit, like I was talking about before when we did the cost segregation for that company that did the million-dollar upfit. In, in an initial upfit, typically you're going to have a lot of items that are fixed, considered fixed assets, depreciated over time. So it's going to be, you know, uh, the, the the construction that's done, the new the new tile on the floor, the new um, if there's framing of of the interior, you know, if you're starting with a, a, a an empty interior and you're framing it out, things like that. All that obviously is going to be depreciated over time. Now, again, we can do the cost segregation and try to maximize um, the immediate impact and, and get the shorter lives. So that's mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. But there's this, the other situation is where you're going into an existing space, either whether you you know either owned or leased, and you're remodeling it or refreshing it. You know, in this business, um, every now and then you've got to remodel and, and refresh your space. You know, it's uh, typically something that needs to be done. And sometimes if you're a franchisee, that's something that's required maybe by your franchisor every few years. So uh, what's what's happened there in the last couple of years, there's been a couple of changes. Um, and one, one big change that IRS has issued a, a safe harbor for remodel and refresh expenses. And what that, in a nutshell, what that uh, new rule says is if you are doing a remodel or refresh of your, of your space and there's certain... Uh, requirements that it has to be interior space and you can't be expanding the building. It has to be within the same footprint of the building and a couple things like that. Um, basically the IRS has come up with a compromise that says you can go ahead and immediately deduct 75% of those expenses and the remaining 25% are just considered uh, under the old rules, the base, the, the basic rules of depreciation are considered a fixed fixed asset. And the reason they did that is because there were, and over the years, there were there are many fights between the IRS and restaurant companies, basically saying, "Well, 
the restaurant companies, of course, argued that what they were doing was just repairs and that should be immediately expensed. But the IRS said, well, no, these are these are additions and you're, you're totally redoing your whole space. And so you need to depreciate over time, mm-hmm. you know, slower depreciation, slower expenses. And so they came up with this compromise that says you can do this and do take the 75% as a way to kind of decrease the amount of fighting between uh, the companies and, and the IRS. Now, the only uh, requirement, overall requirement for this is, um, as we mentioned before, with that $5,000 safe harbor, you have to have audited financial statements to take advantage of it. Right. Um, okay, so this is typically going to be for mostly your larger companies that have um, have an audit requirement. Um, although, if you're doing several locations at one time, this might be a situation where you'd actually want to go ahead and get an audit done um, by a CPA firm to take advantage of it because it could be a big enough number to where it would offset the the, the fee that you would pay. So you have to look at it in, in you know case by case basis. But that is a, is available. Great points. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. I mentioned earlier that you know members of the audience are starting new restaurants. Um, when I was running restaurants, you know my properties or, or my companies were set up as subchapter S corporations, and that was before LLCs were really common. Do you see um, a benefit, or can you make a recommendation in certain situations where it makes sense to be a, a sub S corp versus an LLC? I mean. Obviously, sole proprietorships are dangerous. That's the first thing that they warn you against because of the liability factor right. of you could lose all your personal assets if you are registered as a sole proprietorship. But what is the best form of organization for, say, the independent restaurant operator? Yeah, and, and again, this is a case where it, you have to say it depends. But mm-hmm. um, in general, in most states, LLCs uh, are a pretty a pretty powerful tool and I'm not an attorney, but I can just kind of speak in general terms that LLC does give you some level of uh, legal protection, you know, of of liability protection, uh, at least personally. So that's kind of all I can say there, but I I can't give legal advice. But but from a tax standpoint, uh, the LLCs are basically – have have the potential to be taxed in a number of different ways. There's a default setting depending on number the number of owners of an LLC, but that that can be changed with elections. First of all, what makes the most sense for my company from a in my state where I, where I'm doing business in the state of South Carolina? We do a lot of LLCs. There's 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 a lot of attorneys I've talked to that say there. You are it might be different. You might want to set up a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, or something, you know, something like that. So, but that being said, once you've got your entity set up based on your legal advice, uh, then you decide, okay, now how do I want to be taxed? And from an LLC standpoint, you can actually elect with the IRS to be taxed any way you want. You can be elect, you can elect to be taxed as a partnership or S corporation or a C corporation. And if you have multiple owners, now, if you have only one owner, you can you can actually, by default, the IRS looks at you and you are taxed as a sole proprietorship. So there are some different options, but you can also elect to be taxed differently if you're either a sole owner. So I think there's a couple of different elements. You can't just say strictly this is always the best way that it's going to work. Um, one one key factor, though, I think that has been um, isn't always considered is the the setup for how your restaurant is financed. And when I say that, what I'm primarily talking about is, uh, do you have a money person and an operations person? 
Okay, so if you have that type of a scenario, sometimes it might be better to use a, a partnership type tax arrangement because they're more flexible in terms of the way you can distribute the profits and losses of the company. Okay, and as opposed to an S corporation, S corporation is very strict. You have to adhere to the ownership percentages of the S corporation when you're distributing the profits and the losses yes. of the company. All right, there's there's right. no way you cannot um, you cannot veer away from that. So if it's a 50 50 uh, ownership, the profits and losses have to be distributed 50 50 with an S corporation. Now with a, with a partnership, though, if you bounce back to a partnership. You've got a 50-50 ownership, but say one person is the financing person, the money person, and one person is the operations person. Well, in some cases, that money person might say, well, I know we might, we might lose money in the first year or two, so I'd like to take advantage of those losses because I'm in a very high tax bracket. I'd yes. like to have those losses. Uh -huh. You can't do that with an S corporation, but you can do that with a partnership. At least you potentially can. I mean, there's other rules you have to follow, but um, there's that potential there. So. You know, you can't always just say, well, an S corporation is always going to be the best uh, type of an entity from a tax standpoint. You really have to look at the circumstances on a case by case basis and make sure you understand. And but but another thing to think about is you that can evolve over time. Uh, I've had many, many situations where there's a single owner of a company, whether it's a restaurant or a consulting company or something else, um, where we start off and we say, well, let's set up a single member LLC. You can be very simple, tax as a sole proprietorship. That means you don't have to file a company tax return. It's just a personal tax return with a little attachment to it, Schedule C, very easy. And then after the first couple of years, once you get your feet wet and you feel like, okay, this is a business that I'm going to be in for a while and it's, it, I'm having some success, then we can convert and actually make a transition into either uh, an S corporation, or if you want to take on new partners, new, you know, new, um, new business partners, you could transition to a partnership, um, or even potentially if you get big enough, maybe uh, into a C corporation. So, um, there's just various ways that that can evolve over time. And it's one nice thing about an, an LLC gives you that flexibility to be able to do that over time. Now, another, you're making really great points here that just mm -hmm. points to you know, getting the right advice, whether you're speaking to a lawyer or your CPA. And in some cases, it's sort of a collaboration between the two to put the client in the best position. Now, we're also sort of triggering this thought about um, taking money out of the company, depending on how the company is set up. And that comes down to a term called basis. Can you explain that on, you know, how you can take shareholder distributions or distributions out of a company based on available basis? Can you explain the whole, all the nuances of that? I know it's fairly complicated. I can't <laughs> explain it, but I'm sure you can. Well, I probably can't explain all of it in the time we have, but um, here's, here's a here's a basic overview. Great. Base basis is a combination of 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 essentially a couple things. First of all, it's the initial money that you use to capitalize the company. Okay, your initial investment. Mm -hmm. So um, think of it just like you're buying uh, Google stock. You know, you buy stock on the stock market. What you paid for that stock is the basis. So what you paid to set up your company, that's your initial basis. So you put $100,000 into your company, your basis is $100,000, all right? Okay. So that's where you start. Now, of course, your basis isn't going to stay at $100,000 because you're going to spend that money on you know, setting up the company. You're going to have operations. Hopefully, you're going to have profits. And so the second element of basis is profits or losses. Mm -hmm. Say so you start off with $100,000.
very well and you make $100,000 first year, you're assuming you have not actually taken any money out of the company as, as a distribution, right? So that's the third element, distributions. So once you then take a distribution from the company, that reduces your basis. Okay, so go back to the original investment of 100000 You have a profit of 100000 and let's say you only take $50,000 out as a profit distribution. Well, that leaves you with $150,000 of basis. And so the basis is important because it's involved, it's, it's used in many different types of tax calculations, including whether or not you can deduct losses. So using the same example, if you have a $100,000 initial investment in your company, let's say the first year you lose $50,000, you have a loss instead of a profit of $50,000. Well, you can only deduct that loss on your tax return if you have basis, an initial basis. All right. So you do in this case, in this example we're using, you put $100,000 in, you've lost 50. That's a deductible loss that you can take on your tax return because you have basis of 100,000 that you, you can net it against. So, you know, the basis is very important to track. And then when you think about, you mentioned that you've, you sold a business uh, at whatever time that you were doing, preparing for the sale of that business, I'm sure you had your CPAs calculate your basis in yes, the company absolutely. because that was used to determine your taxable amount on the sale of the business. So that's something that's very important to be tracked over time. And of course we do that here uh, with our, our client, we track the basis in our software and it rolls forward from year to year. So it's, it's a very important thing from several different elements, you know, to tracking, you know, what your investment is in the company, whether or not you're able to deduct the losses, if you have losses for a particular year, and then how much tax you're going to pay when you actually end up selling that company at the end of, end of the life cycle. That was great. And I'm really glad that we got into that. Just one mm -hmm. more really important detail to stay on top of um, for maximum um, benefit. Absolutely. Let's wrap up, Tony, by talking about the tax planning process. Now, let's just assume that a client has been in communication with you throughout the year. You've made some pretty relevant, critical decisions throughout. Now we're talking, you know, it's November and we're starting to think about, you know, putting the books in order. What's really, really important at that time um, before they turn over their books to you? How can they make the process simple and what can you do to, to really help them just uh, at that critical time of year? Well, number one thing is communication. And I think that's uh, very important to do. And, and I encourage my clients to, to reach out to me. And, um, and, and like you said, at the end of the year or even the middle of the year, and there's some clients I meet with quarterly. Some of them I, I typically meet one or two times a year. Um, it just depends on you know the, the, the business and the nature of the business and what they're doing. But it's very important to communicate. And that can be as simple as a quick phone call to say, "Hey, everything is going well. We think, you know, we think things are very similar to last year, and it looks like our profitability is going to be good. Um, do we need to do anything special, or do is there anything we can do now to try and reduce our taxes?" And we'll talk about that. We'll have a conversation. And um, but also, it could be setting up a meeting and, and sitting down and going through the books and looking at things as simple as, well, have you reconciled your bank accounts? Have you, have you recorded all your transactions? Are you in good shape to where we can actually close out the books in early January and go ahead and prepare that tax return and not have to be delayed uh, doing that? Um, all the way up to things like we talked about before. How are you recording your fixed assets? How are you doing your, 
is your payroll all recorded? Is your have you taken advantage of all the different uh, expenses and deductions and things that you can? And is everything completely recorded? And is it going to be useful when when it gets to be time to uh, to prepare your tax return? And then also thinking about planning for the future, you know, just general planning, taxes and otherwise, uh, just financial planning. You know, how is your cash flow? Do you have enough cash to get through maybe a downtime if you if your restaurant is seasonal for some reason? Um, cer- certain types, you know, might be seasonal or it, like I think you mentioned you were in a resort area that has a seasonality okay. to it. Yes. So, you know, looking at um, different things like that, it's just a good good time of year to, to talk and to think about things. Also, most tax advantaged moves typically need to be made before the end of your tax year. So if you're talking in January, there's there's a limited number of things you can do for the prior year. And in some cases, you can help out uh, or help out your situation by making some certain types of tax moves. But if you do that in November or December, there's a whole lot more that you can do before the end of the year to potentially reduce your tax burden and, and you know, improve your situation overall. So it's just very important to, to communicate and uh, just to be on, on a good wavelength with your with your professional and have an understanding going forward. Well, I got a wealth of information um, from this podcast interview, Tony. Good. I can't thank you enough for appearing as a guest. I appreciate sure. your expertise and your advice and all these relevant mm-hmm. financial topics. If you're a restaurant owner, I hope you take a good close listen because chances are you've learned several things that'll put you in a better position. And it is, again, as Tony said, all about communication and establishing that close working relationship with your tax professional. So that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. If you appreciate what we're doing, please give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Hey there, Rockstars. I'm hoping you gained a world of information from Tony. I worked super close with my CPA for well over 15 years, and it was peace of mind to know that a professional was on top of the tax code and every detail that affected my business. Not only that, my CPA was well-versed in restaurants and understood my business. That's the difference between getting every financial advantage, not only at tax time, but all throughout the year. If you have any questions from today's podcast or are interested in talking to Tony, I've included his contact information in the show notes to this episode. Feel free to reach out to him at any time and he'll be happy to assist. I appreciate the great feedback we've been getting for the podcast. As a thank you, click my link in the show notes for a valuable gift from me. And be sure to tune in to next week's episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.